Hi, you're listening to GCSE Revision with Jazz and it's me, Jazz. Today we're starting to look at Act 2 and we're going through scenes 1 and 2. So join me to look at all the analysis, themes and key concepts that come up in these scenes. Okay, so we are doing scenes 1 and 2 of Act 2 and we're just going to go through it. Before we get started, um, grab some highlighters, grab your script of Macbeth so you can uh, analyse along with me and write down whatever you think is relevant or anything that you think is particularly um, interesting, whatever you need to do. So, normally I read out the scenes in little chunks just because it's easier to analyse and actually remember the quotes and... I would read it first and then I'll go through the quotes that have significant meanings and we'll just carry on doing that together. So, let's start with Act 2, Scene 1. I'm going to read the first little chunk and then we'll go through it. Enter Banquo and Fleance with a torch before him. Before we actually start reading, uh, I would recommend if you read along or uh, just look at your script as I read. It'll just help you. And also, if you have um, a copy of the modern text with you, you can just go and Google on Sparknotes and there will be modern text as well. That would help you actually understand what they're saying. But if you don't, don't worry, because when I talk about the quotes, I will tell you what they mean in modern text. So now I will start reading. Act 2, Scene 1. Enter Banquo and Fleance with a torch before him. Banquo. How goes the night, boy? Fleance. The moon is down. I have not heard the clock. Banquo. And she goes down at twelve. Fleance. I take to tis later, sir. Banquo. Hold, take my sword. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. Take thee that too. A heavy summons lies like lead upon me, and yet I would not sleep. Merciful powers restrain in me the cursed thoughts that nature gives way in, to in response. Enter Macbeth and a servant with a torch. Give me, my, give me my sword. Who's there? Macbeth. A friend. Banquo. What, sir, not yet at rest? The king's abed. He hath been in an unusual pleasure, and sent forth great largesse to your offices. This diamond he greets your wife withal. By the name of most kind hostess, and shut up in measureless content. Macbeth, being unprepared, or will became the servant to defect, which else should free have wrought. Okay, that is the first little section of Act 2, Scene 1. So, when Banquo and Fleance enter, it says, Enter Banquo and Fleance with a torch before him. Now, in Shakespeare, the stage directions are just as important as the actual things that the characters say. So when it says, with a torch before him, this is references to light. And references to light are often linked directly to the concept of goodness. If you can remember before, it said, stars hide your fires. So it's like, um, it's metaphorical as Banquo's um, sons shall be king, if you remember the first prophecies. And Fleance is literally carrying the light. Uh, it's symbolic of the future. He is the future of Scotland. Then Banquo asks, how goes the night, boy? And Fleance says, 
The moon is down, I have not heard the clock. Which just means the moon has set, the clock hasn't struck yet. So it shows that it is just about midnight and there's a sense of foreboding. Normally something bad happens at midnight, it's like um, a witch's hour kind of thing. Then Banquo says, hold, take my sword. He's a soldier by nature and he's prepared and he's ready for whatever is making him feel a bit unsettled. And then he says, there's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. Now, this means if you translate it into modern text, the heavens are being stingy with their light. Now, this could reflect how Banquo is similarly in the dark um, with his suspicions. He doesn't know what's happening, but he does know that he feels unsettled and uneasy about something. Then he says, Banquo says, a heavy summons lies like lead upon me, which means I'm tired and feeling heavy, and yet I would not sleep. So he can't sleep. And this shows us that he's aware of danger. There is something in the back of his mind that is troubling him, and that hence he can't go to sleep. Um, and also, if you think about it, sleep is heavily linked in Macbeth with um, peace and rest. And later on in the poem, Macbeth does say, um, Glams hath murdered sleep and therefore Cawdor. And he also says that sleep is the balm of hurt minds. So sleep is heavily linked in Macbeth as a healing uh, action that you can do. So if Banquo cannot sleep, it's kind of um, like he's, his mind is not at rest. Just for reference, uh, Macbeth says... Um, all his things about sleep in Act 2, Scene 2. So we will be going through that later on. Then, um, Banquo says, Cursed thoughts that nature gives way in response, which basically means uh, nightmares that plague me when I rest. So he's not resting because he gets nightmares, which shows he has a troubled mind. And this explores Banquo's struggles to sleep. And in Shakespearean England, in Jacobian England, as you can call it, it was a commonly held belief that demons um, caused nightmares. They were the cause of nightmares. So you could link that to the witches also. Then Macbeth enters uh, with a servant and Banquo immediately says, give me my sword, who's there? Shows again that he's worried, he's alert and he's anxious he is uh he has a sense of foreboding he thinks something is going to happen and he's very quick to act on that instinct and then macbeth answers a friend now this is ironic as he kills banquo later on so it's ironic yeah that's all you can say about that one really he's ironic because later on he actually kills him then Banquo says to Macbeth, what sir, not yet at rest. So this has a suspicious tone to it. You're not asleep yet. Why are you not asleep? Uh, which could show that he is suspicious of Macbeth. Maybe a little bit. Not a lot, but maybe in the back of his mind. He's like, hmm, that's not right. Then Banquo says, the king's abed, he hath been in unusual pleasure. Now, it's kind of like unusual pleasure. Duncan is happy, but Banquo acknowledges that 
it's a bit weird. So it gives a sense of something that's not right. Um, shows Duncan is happy and there's irony in there because he is going to be killed. And it also shows that Duncan Duncan's guard is down because he trusts Macbeth and he trusts Lady Macbeth and he, uh, in the beginning, when they actually come to the castle, it seems like a normal place. It doesn't seem like a, a place where these terrible acts of regicide are going to be committed. Then Banquo says the diamond he greets your wife, which is talking about the diamond that uh, Duncan gives to Lady Macbeth, shows that he's a generous king and he basically just gave her a gift. By the way, if you can hear some like movie sounds in the background, my family are watching a movie downstairs, so that's probably what the sound is. Um, then Macbeth says, being unprepared. He basically saying that um, they were unprepared for the king's visit, which is irony because they planned out every single thing they were going to do, what they were going to say, when they were going to kill the king, uh, Duncan, when they were going, how they're going to um, blame it on the guards, everything. So it's ironic because we as an audience, we know. It's dramatic irony, actually, yeah, because we as an audience, we know um, that that's a lie and it's a big lie. Then... Yeah, then we've come to that little section, we've come to the end of that. So now I'm going to read the next section. This section is quite... Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. I'm just thinking. Right. Okay, so I'm going to read this next section, and this is going to be a small section, but then it's going to be a big section. So, but we're still on Act 2, Scene 1. So, Banquo. All's well. I dreamt last night of the three weird sisters. To you they have showed some truth. Macbeth. I think not of them. Yet when we can entreat an hour to serve, we would spend it in some words upon that business if you would grant the time. Banquo. At your king's leisure. Macbeth. If you shall cleave to my consent when tis it shall make honour for you. Banquo. So I lose none in seeking to augment it. But still keep my bosom franchised and allegiance clear. I shall be cancelled. Macbeth. Good response the while. Banquo. Thanks, sir. The like to you. Macbeth. To the servant. Go bid thy mistress when my drink is ready. She strike upon the bell. Get thee to bed. Exit servant. Okay, so this is the little section, Act 2, Scene 1, before Macbeth has his Is This a Dagger, which I see before me soliloquy, which is um, quite a important scene in Macbeth and one that students normally remember quite easily. So let's just go through that little bit before it and then we'll go straight into that Is, that a, is This a Dagger, which I see before me soliloquy. So... Banquo says to Macbeth, I dreamt last night of the three weird sisters. Now this shows, first of all, that the witches are still relevant and they haven't been um, physically in the play for quite a while, but they are really relevant in the storyline. And it also shows that he's troubled by the prophecies just as Macbeth is, but he just doesn't act on it in a way that Macbeth does. And then Macbeth lies and says, I think not of them. Which you can link back to Act 1, because in Act 1, 
Macbeth says to Banquo, let me just find the quote. He says to Banquo in Act 1, Scene 3, let us speak our free hearts each to other, which basically means let's talk to each other, like keep on uh, have this friendship kind of thing. But they don't really talk their free hearts to each other at all. Um, this whole scene, Macbeth has pretty much been lying to Banquo saying he was unprepared and also that he doesn't think for the weird sisters. So you can link it back to Act 1 um, as how he's been, he's changed as a result of the prophecies. And then um, he also says we a lot. Now this is a bit complicated but he is using royal lexicon which means he is using royal language and um, At those times, the monarchy used to refer to themselves as we. It's kind of like how now, um, if you're posh, you would, you refer to yourself as one. One must not do this. One shouldn't do that. Uh, it's like that. And he's already re referring to himself as we, which is using royal lexicon instead of saying I. Instead of saying I can entreat an hour or I would spend it in some words, he says we would spend it in some words. That doesn't mean him and Banquo, it means himself. He is using royal lexicon and he's already speaking as if he was a king. So that's the significance of that. Um, also, when I said about um, him lying when he says I think not of them, which refers to the weird sisters, um, another thing you can say is Macbeth is not willing to engage in a uh, detailed conversation about the witches. Maybe he's just not comfortable. And it, again, it just shows you that he they don't speak their free hearts to each other. Then, um, then Macbeth says, If you shall cleave to my consent, when tis it shall make honour for you. Which means in modern text, if you translate it, if you stick with me, when the time comes, there will be something in it for you. Now, cleave means to be consentful. And this could mean Macbeth is asking Banquo to meet with him. Or could be Macbeth asking Banquo to accept his advice. Or it could be Macbeth asking for Banquo to continue being faithful uh, to him. And there's an um, ambiguity in that sentence ambiguity means like um, it's not as clear you can have different interpretations uh, it could be um, telling uh, Macbeth uh, Banquo that he plans to reward him it could be uh, to meet him again so they can talk later on or it could be Macbeth telling Banquo to accept his advice we don't know it could be either three but I would say it's probably about um um Macbeth asking Banquo to be uh, faithful for him and he will get something in return. So Banquo says, my bosom franchised and allegiance clear, which just means as long as I can do it with a clear conscience, which shows he is loyal to Duncan and he's very clear about that. And he's also clear about uh, he won't do the wrong thing. And as long as it's not um, a crime, he'll do whatever but it's just it shouldn't be a bad thing basically so we can tell that he is not as sinister as Macbeth is because Macbeth is planning regicide at this point whereas Banquo would not do that he he needs a clear conscience so that's kind of like when it says 
um, in the first prophecies, let me find the page. I know I have to like pause a lot to find the quotes. Give me a second. Oh, it says, not so happy yet much happier for Banquo. And it's kind of um, referencing to their conscience and their general happiness. You know, Macbeth is, um, has an inner conflict and he is, he has a troubled mind. He can't go to sleep. Whereas Banquo um, wants to have a clear conscience and he actually does for most of the play. And that is it for that little section. And now we're going to move on to the Macbeth soliloquy, the really famous one. So I'm going to read the Macbeth soliloquy. Make sure you read along with me. So this is all Macbeth talking. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle towards my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal visions, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalled me the way that I was going, and such an instrument was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools o'er the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dungeon gouts of blood, which was not so before. There's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now, o'er the one half-world, nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale hecate's offerings and withered murder alarmed by his sentinel the wolf whose howls his watch thus with his stealthy pace with tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghost thou sure and firm set earth hear not my steps which way they walk for fear the, thy very stones prate of my whereabout and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it whilst i threat he lives whilst the heat of deeds too cold breath gives a bell rings i go and it is done the bell invites me hear it not duncan for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell Macbeth exits. So that is the end of Act 2, Scene 1. And now we're going to go through um, his soliloquy. Now, there's a lot to say about soliloquy. It, um, when I say a lot, I mean there's a lot. So get your puns ready. Let me just flip back to the page. So the first sentence is, is this a dagger which I see before me? The first thing I want to point out is the dagger. Now, swords are a noble uh, man's weapon, whereas a dagger is a symbol of a thief. Thieves and wrongdoers use daggers, whereas um, soldiers and noble people use swords. Like in the beginning, Macbeth had a sword, but now he's made this transition to a dagger. So that just shows his change from being um, the ideal soldier to a... Um, treasoner i don't know if that's a word but treasoner then we can actually talk about is this a dagger which i see before me so this is a powerful hallucination it's clear that it's a manifestation of his ambition and guilt 
which seems lifelike to him, and the thought of killing Duncan is so disturbing that it's already affecting his mind. Then he says, come let me clutch thee. Let me, there's an eagerness with that word. Uh, and also he uses the imperative, maybe it's an attempt to control the situation that he's in. Also, let me is kind of begging for the knife. Like, let me hold you. He's begging for the dagger. Then he says, Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Now, he's speaking to the dagger directly. And this could be, the dagger could be personification of his internal conflict that he is facing at this point of time. And I'm just trying to find the modern text for this. Okay, so, art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight means fateful apparition. Isn't it possible to touch you as well as see you? So again, he's quite confused at this moment in time he doesn't know if it's real if it's a hallucination um and he's this could be an effect of the stress he's under then it says false creation and heat oppressed brain now this could show that he recognizes um that the dagger is not real and it shows he has an understanding of reality Again, heat depressed brain could be a mental illness that he suffers from the stress and the coming guilt of killing the king. Also, it could show he is in a in a highly emotional state, and you could say that he's delusional at this point. Just and he hasn't even committed the act yet. He's this um, stressed out and worried that he's having these hallucinations before he's even killed the king in the first place. So, then it says, Thou marshalt me, which means you're leading me. Uh, this could show that he's not in control, he's led by the dagger, which could be uh, also a metaphor for the way he's led by his ambition. And also, it could be a way, like, Lady Macbeth has been doing. She is the dagger she leads him she yes Macbeth has always been ambitious and he's always had that quality in him but I think that Lady Macbeth really brings it and intensifies that feelings of ambition because she knows how to manipulate him in a way she knows that he um holds his soldierly um nature really high in regards to his character and he knows that he values masculinity and his how other people see him. So uh, she is she could be a, a metaphor for the dagger because they both draw him to commit regicide. They both lead him to commit the highest form of treason. And Mac Macbeth's ability to be able to be manipulated shows that he's kind of weak in character. He can be manipulated quite easily if you know him well. Then he also calls uh, the dagger an instrument um, and it shows that he's 
not being specific. Sorry, no, it doesn't show that. Uh, it could show he has intentions because instrument is a specific thing that you use. Or it could be that he's just reluctant to admit that he's using a dagger like a thief. And he still wants to be that loyal, perfect soldier. Then he says, mine eyes are made the fools, oh, the other senses. Which I mean, as you can guess just means my eyesight must either be the one sense that's not working so that shows he's aware that these are hallucinations he's aware that these might not there's a possibility that these aren't real um this isn't a real dagger just floating in the air then he says and on thy blade and dungeon gouts of blood which means i can see you and i see blood splotches on your blade that weren't there before. So, the fact that there is blood on not only the blade but also the handle could foreshadow the blood on Macbeth's hands later on and it reflects Macbeth's guilt. And if you know later on, he is really fixated on the blood on his hands and that he can't recognise his hands um, anymore because of Duncan's blood on his hands. So that could be foreshadowing that later on. Then Macbeth also says there's no such thing uh, when he's talking about the dagger. And this could be Macbeth's deliberate refusal to believe in the dagger, which could show that Macbeth's mind is sound, so his actions couldn't be blamed in his mental conditions. Because he knows that that's not a dagger, so you can't... Maybe that's an argument for why um, Macbeth is actually aware of what he's doing. It's not really that much of a mental illness that he suffers from. It's more of the guilt and the uh, internal conflict he is facing at this point. Then he calls um, the killing Duncan bloody business. There's plosive alliteration there and it reflects his violent intentions. Then he says nature seems dead shows that the unnatural nature of his deed, unnatural nature, um, just shows that what he's about to do is not natural. It's something that nobody should ever do, especially in the Jacobian times when they were highly religious and, you know, uh, they believed that the king was the spokesperson to God. He was the closest thing on earth to a god. He was chosen by God. So it also foreshadows the effect that the murder has on nature as we find on later on when uh, Lennox and an old man are talking about the occurrences that have happened as a result then he says wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep so that means that half the world is asleep and being deceived by evil nightmares now, this foreshadows his fears that are immediately followed by Duncan's death, uh, that he won't be able to sleep again, like Macbeth uh, shall sleep no more. It foreshadows that. And the inability to sleep is unnatural, which emphasises that what he's about to do is um, out of the bounds of reality, of normality. It's, again, unnatural. Then he talks about pale heck eight, 
offerings. I always think it's Hecate, but it's Hecate's offerings. Give me a second. Okay, so it's Hecate or Hecate. I like Hecate, but we're going to call it Hecate. So, Hecate is the goddess of witchcraft. And when Macbeth mentions her, there's instantly a semantic field of evil and supernatural begin. So things like after he's mentioned Pearl Hecate, uh, you get the wolf, um, moves like a ghost. You get present horror. Mm, just trying to find more. Okay, I think that's it. So you get this um, semantic field of witchcraft. Semantic field just means that um, there's lots of words and imagery used that um, convey that theme. So, yeah. And Hecate can communicate with the death, uh, with the dead, sorry, which foreshadows the appearance of Banquo's ghost that occurs later on when Macbeth kills Banquo because... Um, Macbeth is really uh, obsessed when he becomes king that his legacy remains and he um, the throne is kept in his bloodline. So also she is often associated with crossroads, which I quite like because if you think about it, at this point Macbeth is at a metaphorical crossroad. He is at a cross crossroad to think about uh, will he kill the king or will he not? Will he be a loyal soldier or does he want to um, become um, king? So, he's at moral crossroad. I like that um, little analysis. I think that's one that most students won't pick up on. So that's a good one. Then he says, the wolf whose house his watch. Now, this means... Old man murder, having been roused by the howls of his wolves. So Macbeth comes, compares himself to a wolf. So wolves are symbolic of loyal animals, which mirrors Macbeth uh, in the beginning of the play. However, um, in this image, this wolf is um, loyal only to death, which symbolise um, symbolizes Macbeth's betray betrayal to the king and also it shows his um change throughout the play he goes from loyal to uh only loyal to death and then he talks about tarquin's ravishing strides now another thing that most students might not pick up on is tarquin is actually roman mythology and basically tarquin's Basically, he raped someone. I don't know the full story. If you search on Google, you can probably tell. But basically, he raped someone and that led to probably somebody important. And that led to the overthrow of the monarchy in uh, Rome. So, at this time, Shakespeare would Shakespeare's audience would be quite familiar with Tarquin and his story. And just like Tarquin, it could show that... Um, Macbeth will cause the downfall of Scotland like Tarquin did then that is the end actually that was the end of his monologue and now we're going to start going start to go on act two scene one sorry no scene two we just did scene one I was confused there I was like what okay so 
before we go into that, I want to just talk about the symbolism of the dagger. So even before Macbeth has killed the king, um, he's already plagued by the idea um, and he fears his reign will uh, not continue on uh, with his legacy uh, and that he will not produce hairs. I just said hairs. Um, ignore that. So already now he is already plagued by this idea. If you think about Macbeth psychoanalytically, he looks up to Duncan and cares about his approval. Now this is why it gets a bit uh, confusing. Not confusing, but this is like higher level thinking, maybe grade eights and nines. So think, just listen if you want to get those kind of grades. So. If you think about Macbeth psychoanalytically, which just means um, the way he behaves, he looks up to Duncan and he craves his approval. Um, he is fatherless and now he has killed his replacement parental figure. If you think Lady Macbeth even strengthens his, this fatherly link when she says she would kill him herself if he had not resembled her father as he slept. Now, his relationship with Lady Macbeth mirrors this. This is where I think it's more um, this idea of um, him looking up at masculine figures and as a father figure, this is more relevant here. His action to kill the king is somewhat done to please Lady Macbeth. He probably wouldn't have killed the king because he said, we shall proceed no longer, no further in this business. So he probably would have not murder the king if it wasn't for Lady Macbeth and her manipulation. Uh, he is desperate for her support and deeply wishes for her to believe in him. And their relationship has Oedipal roots. Look at that. Some fancy word, fancy um, terms there, which just means that he kills his quote-unquote father figure in order to gain respect and, and, and acceptance from his, quote, mother figure, unquote. So, I just wanted to point that out. Maybe that's worth remembering. Maybe not. You choose. And also, in these few lines of Macbeth's soliloquy, Shakespeare explores the inner turmoil of Macbeth while simultaneously allowing his um, protagonist to explore the ongoing impact Duncan's death will have on the natural world. Um, and on himself and the soliloquy also allows Shakespeare to you know comment on the difference between free will and predestination you know the dagger that appears literally points Macbeth to his upcoming crime and into his uncertain and unpleasant future so the dagger which appears is most frequently explained as a hallucination it's a product of Macbeth's stressed mind and a visible marker of the hurdle Macbeth must leap in order to fulfil his ambition um, of being king. Oh, I also forgot this. Sorry, guys. Um, at the end of Act 2, Scene 1, he says, I go and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is now that summons thee to heaven or hell. He's talking in, in iambic pentameter or trochaic tetrameter um, which only the witches and Lady Macbeth 
speaking. Sometimes Lady Macbeth speaks in it. So it shows he's bewitched. Um, and a bell rings. Now, Lady Macbeth is the one who re um, rings that bell. So again, you could l link Lady Macbeth to this because she rings the bell and he is bewitched. That's when he starts talking in trochaic... Uh, such a tricky word to say. Trochaic tetrameter. Um, also, the bell ring signifies that his plan has been set in stone. He has decided what he's going to do. And this time, he's actually decided it on his own without Lady Macbeth. But we, you could argue that at this point, she's already manipulated him enough that she, he's just um, thinking of thinking like this because he's been impacted by the manipulation before. Now let's read Act 2, Scene 2. I know this is probably going to be another long video of video podcast episode. Let me just check how long Act 2, Scene 2 is. Okay, not that long, but actually no, this is a long one actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, this episode might be an hour long, I'm just thinking. So, stay tuned. I don't know why I said that, ignore that. Okay, so, Act 2, Scene 2, I'm going to read out the first portion, which is Lady Macbeth and Macbeth talking to each other. Yeah, okay, let's go. Lady Macbeth. Enter Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. That which hath made them drunk hath made me bold. What hath quenched them hath given me fire. Hark, peace, it was the owl that shrieked, the fatal bowman which gives the stanced good night he is about it. The doors are open and the surfeit grooms do mock their charge with snores. I have drugged their possets, that, dr that death and nature do contend about them, whether they live or die. Macbeth. Within. Who's there? What? Ho. Lady Macbeth. Alack, I am afraid they have awaked, and tis not done. The attempt and not the deed confounds us. Hark, I laid their daggers ready. He could not miss him. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. I had done it. Enter Macbeth with bloody daggers. My husband, Macbeth. I have done the deed. Didst thou not hear a noise? Lady Macbeth. I heard the owl scream and the crickets cry. Did not you speak? Macbeth. When? Lady Macbeth. Now. Macbeth. As I descend? Lady Macbeth. I. Macbeth. Hark who lies I the second chamber. Lady Macbeth. Donald Bain. Macbeth. Looking at his hands. This is a sorry sight. Like I'm going to end there because then they start talking about their hands and the murder. So. In the beginning of the act, Lady Macbeth says, That which hath made them drunk hath made me bold, shows that she's had just an, uh, just enough alcohol to be brave, but not useless. Then Lady Macbeth says a lot of hark in this um, little speech here. She says peace a lot. There's quite a lot of exclamation marks and this shows that she's paranoid and worried of being caught and normally she's quite in like cool and composed but she speaks in short sentences. He is about it, um, whether they live or die, hark peace, all that kind of stuff. Then she says, he could not miss him. 
So she's basically talking about how she put the servant's daggers where Macbeth would find them and he couldn't miss them, which could show the lack of trust that she has in his, his abilities to carry out the task. She also says, had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it, which shows despite wishing to be more masculine, her femininity holds her back. There's a sense of irony as she encounters an obstacle herself and she has a rare moment of compassion for Duncan that she uh, that wasn't uh, visible to the audience before. Then enter Macbeth with his bloody daggers and she cries my husband. She calls him husband for the first and only time in this play and she is drunk. So that might show you a little bit about Lady Macbeth. I don't know. It's just um, a bit weird how she doesn't call him husband. So then Lady Macbeth says, I heard the owl scream and the crickets cry. Now owls and crickets are omens of death. So that's a little thing you can say, which could represent how they've killed Duncan. Then they talk in such short sentences. Let me just read out this little bit. I won't tell you, I won't say Lady Macbeth, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth. I'll just tell you. Now, as I descend, I, hark, who lies, I, in, no, I, the second chamber, Donald Bane. This is a sorry sight. Very short one word sentences. Shows they have panicked. They are fearful. She is in a state of obvious agitation. Her calm exterior that is normally present is kind of shattered by the screech of an owl. She uses short interrogative sentences, almost like she's interrogating Macbeth. Um, she's jumpy and nervous by the possibility of being caught. And then Macbeth says, this is a sorry sight. He looks down at his hands and he says, this is a sorry sight. It's a symbol of guilt. Um, and it, you can see that this is painful for Macbeth. He has committed the unthinkable, something he would have never thought of before. And he heard the witch's prophecies. So you can see that he acknowledges that, oh God, he did something terrible. He has essentially committed regicide. Okay, now I'm going to read this little, the next section. Yeah, so... Looking at his hands, this is a sorry sight, Lady Macbeth. A foolish thought to say a sorry sight, Macbeth. There's one did laugh in, in sleep, and one cried murder, that they did wake each other, I stood and heard them, but they did say their prayers, and addressed them again to sleep, Lady Macbeth. There are two lodged together, Macbeth. One cried, God bless us, and amen at the other, as they had seen me with these hangman's hands, listening their fear, I could not say amen, when they did say, God bless us. Lady Macbeth, consider it not so deeply. Macbeth, but where foul could, I, could not I pronounce amen? I had most need of blessing, and amen stuck in my throat. Lady Macbeth, these deeds must not be thought after these ways, so it will make us mad, Macbeth. Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more, Macbeth does murder sleep. The innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labour's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. Lady Macbeth, what do you mean? Macbeth. Still it cried, sleep no more to all the house. Glams has murdered sleep, and therefore Cordor shall sleep no more. Macbeth shall sleep no more. Lady Macbeth. Who was it that thus cried? 
Why, worthy thane, you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain sickly of things. Go get some water and wash this filthy witness from your hands. Why did you bring these daggers from the place? They must lie there. Go carry them and smear the sleepy grooms with the blood. Okay, so. After Macbeth has said, this is a sorry sight, Lady Macbeth um, instantly says, a foolish thought to say a sorry sight, which just means that's a stupid thing to say. She gains control of the situation. She scolds him for his angst. And she's determined they carry out their plan till the end. She's not going to stand for Macbeth's little um, tantrums, as she would probably call it. Macbeth then says, uh, and one cried murder. Uh, this shows that he's becoming overwhel overwhelmingly distraught at what he has heard. It's not entirely clear who Macbeth is referring to, who cried and who laughed. Um, this ambiguity could uh, originate from his maniacal state and that's a fancy word um and he that he's found himself in then macbeth talks about how he couldn't say amen he says listening therefore i could not say amen um that is a, sim a sign that he is cursed he is damned suggests that he is being cursed because he's committed a sin is a sign of guilt um, and this concerns him the most because he knows what he's done is wrong and it shows um that what he's done might be something that god is angered at and then he said i had most need of blessing and amen stuck in my throat he's tormented by his action and he's also acknowledges that he's the one who needed god's blessing the most because he's the one who committed the crime so he acknowledges what he's done is deeply wrong then lady Macbeth said so it will make us mad and before in the play she was um just before Macbeth came she was very jumpy. She was very um, unsettled. But now she is blunt and practical. She recognises Macbeth's suffering um, and she's trying to be calm and cool, probably for Macbeth because Macbeth is the one who's freaking out and she has to be um, calm and level-headed. And also it foreshadows the madness that she will be driven to at the end of the play when she's like, get out, damn spot, something like that. I don't actually remember. So it foreshadows that uh, she will go mad at the end of the play then he says i heard a voice cry now he says i heard a voice cry it could show that he's maybe schizophrenic he has hallucinations um it's a uh, result of his extreme pressure to prove his masculinity to um lady Macbeth and pretty much everyone and it could be his paranoia then it says uh he repeats sleep a lot he repeats sleep one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eleven lines. He says sleep a lot, which it's difficult not to invest some sympathy in Macbeth because he's expressing an almost childlike helplessness uh, and he's yearning for um, sleep. And then he um, goes on to talk about why sleep is so important. So my mum interrupted me, so I don't know where I left off. But after he repeats about um, how much he wants to have sleep, he also talks about why sleep is so important. He says it's a sore labour's bath, it's a balm of hurt's minds, 
hurt minds, uh, show sleep is mending, and that all creatures need sleep in order to survive, yet Macbeth will become increasingly plagued by his emotional instability that leads to his uh, gradual destruction. So sleep equals peace, and no sleep is guilt. Um, and also he says mad, Macbeth does murder sleep, so it just shows that he won't be able to sleep. Then Lady Macbeth's like, what do you mean? And then he elaborates more to that. He says, glams hath murder sleep and therefore Cordor shall sleep no more. Shows his movement from glams to Cordor and that uh, Cordor's title is linked to his treachery. Then he said, uh, Lady Macbeth says, who was it that cried? So who was the voice? And Lady Macbeth shows that Lady Macbeth's curious uh, before deducting that her husband husband's ramblings are not to be taken seriously which is ironic as she's quick to um denounce her husband's fears is denounce the right word i don't know let me check on google what denounce means okay yeah denounce seems fine so she's quick to do that but um it's her who will end up not being able to sleep at the end of the play which leads to her death ultimately then she says do unbend your noble strength to think so shows that she's trying to comfort him. Uh, then she follows with a lot of imperatives. Go get some water, wash, they must go smear to take control of the situation. Um, and also she that's when she realises that Macbeth has brought the daggers with him, which he was meant to leave. She says, why did you bring these daggers from this place? She goes quite quickly, quickly from being comforting to um, accusating him and almost scolding him like a little child. Um... And Macbeth says, I'll go no more. He's obviously traumatised mentally that he cannot stand going uh, there again, going to the place of Duncan's death. Then Lady Macbeth calls him infirm of purpose, which basically means coward, and she attacks his masculinity yet again. She says, I'll gild the faces of the grooms with all, for it must seem their guilt. Which basically means, I'll paint the servants' faces with blood. We must make it seem like they're guilty. So she's not phased by murdering. She's ready to do what she has to do for her, their plan to work. Also, with the imperatives, I forgot to say this, but it shows that she is the authority figure. She has domineering behaviour and she's constantly telling Macbeth what to do. Like I said, like a mother to their child. Then Macbeth says, what, what hands are here? His, he's refusing to look at his hands uh, as the blood has made them almost appear alien to him. Uh, and Macbeth doesn't believe he was capable of doing the act, but he has. And he also says, they pluck out mine eyes. Now, normally perpetrators refuse to see consequences of actions and they're keen to cut off their sense of sight if it means that, um, saving themselves from the guilt they suffer. And that's what Macbeth is trying to do. Like I said before, I'm not sure, I think I said this last video, but um, eyes and hands have a connection in Shakespearean plays quite often. And basically he's refusing to look at his hands because he doesn't recognise them anymore. Then he says, um, Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from my hand? So it's a metaphor of how much water is needed in, and it contrasts to when Lady Macbeth, Lady Macbeth says, uh, a little water clears us of the deed. It's a direct contrast and his guilt is so great it shows that. But if we want to go into more detailed analysis, he recognises that the guilt cannot easily be 
uh, rid of from himself. Um, and the personal interrogation ends with a reference to Neptune, which highlights his fear of what is to come, because if the Roman god of the sea cannot cleanse Macbeth of the blood, um, which physically dries on his hands and symbolic symbolically stains his morality, nothing can. Um, and he also talks about how... Let me just turn the page. Um... The multi, the multitudinous, multitudinous seas in Cardine making the green one red, which means no. Instead, my hands will stain the seas scarlet, turning the green waters red. Now, this is possibly a biblical reference of the seas uh, changing colour from green to red, um, because as you can tell in Macbeth, there's a lot of biblical references. Um, and the only reason I know these is I have, um, I've like had sources, but I wouldn't know this on my own. And I'm sure loads of you would not know this on your own, unless you're like some kind of Bible genius. So just making it clear, I did not know this on my own. So it's possibly a biblical reference to when the pharaohs in Egypt refused to free the Israelites from slavery. So water became blood as a consequence of God's wrath. So hence this could be a biblical reference because Macbeth, essentially by killing God's spokesperson on earth, Duncan, has become, has become subject of God's fury. So washing his hands will not free him of his guilt. Okay. Now. <sighs> she says, Lady Macbeth says, says my hands are of your colour, but I shame to wear a heart so white. Have I read this bit? I don't think I have. I'll read this bit and then I'll talk about it. So then uh, Lady Macbeth enters and she's after returning the daggers and she says, My hands are of your colour, but I shame to wear a heart so white. Uh, then there's a knock and she, I'm going to do this whenever there's a knock just so I don't have to keep on saying knock I hear a knocking at the south entry retire we to our chamber a little water clears us of this steed how easy it is then your constancy hath left you untended hark more knocking get on your nightgown lest occasion cause us and show us to be watchers be not lost so poorly in your thoughts to know my deed to best not to know myself Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking, I would thou couldst. Oh, I didn't notice that, but when I... Okay, I'll come back to that. Okay, so, Lady Macbeth says my hands are of your colour. Uh, shows that uh, she now has red blood on her hands. Uh, and she says, I shame to wear a heart so white. So she's unable to excuse her husband for his cowardice. She's ashamed perhaps that he has not embodied the masculine quality she believes a man should possess. There's a clear theme of masculinity in this play. You know, Macbeth, um, Macbeth is constantly, um, oh, what's it called? Being, uh, not scolded, but criticized, that's the word, for not being masculine enough in Lady Macbeth's eyes. Um, and Lady Macbeth always tries to be masculine, unsex me here, you know. She is. She wants to be masculine. So there's a clear theme in this um, play. She uh, 
shows that her blood are covered in hands and hands are also a motif in the play. So Lady Macbeth's hands highlight the possible the responsibility she bears and the blame she shares um, on M Duncan's death. Then the knocks uh, heighten the tension. They are Macduff's knocks, which you will see if you watch the play. It's going to be Macduff, Macduff knocking on the door. It could be shows. It could be symbolic of Macbeth's fate knocking for him because eventually Macduff is the one that kills Macbeth. Uh, and the knocking also creates tension because he, they're moments away from getting caught um, red-handed. Literally, red-handed. Um, then Lady Mac Macbeth barks instructions at him. Hark, more knocking, get on your nightgown. Uh, show us to be watchers, be not lost so poorly in your thoughts. She's planned this perfectly. She's taking control. Then Macbeth says, to know my deed to her, best not to... Uh, best not to know myself so he acknowledged that means rather than have to think about my crime i prefer to be completely un unconscious um he acknowledges his deed and realizes that he has transformed to someone unrecognizable and you can say this is the parapetia of his character parapetia means a turning point for a character where they uh, realize something that will be significant to the play and it is significant to the play and it's his parapetia because he he and the audience acknowledges that murder has changed him. Now, let's carry on with Act 2. Oh, wait a second. Yeah, we're done with Act 2. So, that is Act 2, Scene 1 and 2 done. It took us just under an hour to do. And next episode, we will be talking about Act 2, Scene 3 um and maybe act two scene four but scene three is a really long one so actually yeah we'll just do act two scene three next episode which should be coming out sometime next week maybe if i have the time right so thank you for listening and we have done it we have done act one act two scene one and scene two i always get confused between the acts and the scenes if you haven't noticed by now Okay, thank you so much for listening to this episode of On Macbeth, where we continued analysing the text, um, and you listened to GCC Revision with Jazz by Jazz. Uh, I hope this helped in any way, shape or form, and please feel free to you know leave a comment or you can email me, it's in my de podcast description. If you have anything that you uh, want me to cover, but like I said, I've made this clear on my channel. No maths, please. I can't do maths to save my life. Uh, so we will not be focusing on that. And, you know, follow, like, I don't know, subscribe, whatever you want to do. Uh, no pressure. And I hope you have a lovely day wherever you are in the world. Thank you and bye.